Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Christine Ha from The Blind Goat and Sin Chow coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by my co-host this week. She's a bartender and beverage consultant responsible for the cocktail programs at a number of successful Houston bars and restaurants. Linda Salinas, welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, you know, just living my best life. When are you not? Right. (laughs) So, Linda, as we move into the news of the week, I want to kind of have a little bit of a philosophical discussion with you. Because, frankly, it was a slow week for food news with the July 4th holiday. Mm -hmm. But we got to talk about what's going on with bars in the state of Texas right now. Oh, my gosh. Why? Why? Well, I I mean, there's there's a, a lot of different things to sort of break down here, right? They were ordered closed for the second time by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And, I mean, I... I mean, feel free to disagree with me, but let me just tell you, I've been watching Michael Neff's uh, broadcasts on Facebook and Instagram Live. He's, of course, the owner of the Continental, uh, not the Continental Club, the Cottonmouth Club, easy for me to say. He's been on this podcast a couple of times. Um, and, And he thinks bars are at a pretty critical moment here, that if they don't get some sort of serious government assistance, that they... A lot of the bars that we love will probably not reopen. And so I just wanted to kind of put it to you. What are you hearing in the bar community? How dire is it? Do you agree with Michael Neff? Absolutely. I mean, that's my community. You know, it's really, you know, bars are not just for drinks. It's for community. And, um, it's interesting that we're, we're at this like point where we're getting shut down, you know, bars, bars specifically are getting shut down and, and it's only, and it's only, honestly, it's only places that don't have food, you know, like actual bars, you know, and so anyone with the 51% side. Yes. Yeah. Are not allowed to have any sort of sit-down, dine-in customers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's really hard because, you know, they're, I mean, the margins are already pretty slim, you know, just like, just like restaurants, you know, um, but it's, it's, there's no relief. There's no relief for anyone in hospitality. And just because, you know, restaurants are open doesn't mean that they're making it because they're at 50, they're at 50% capacity. So, I mean, it's. Uh, I know that there's a couple of things that, that are, that are moving forward. You know, I know that Lindsay Ray with two headed dog and Mike Neff are, uh, launching a program to help with other, uh, helping. They're basically banding together and they're helping each other to try to do some sort of like pop-up of selling drinks and so on and so forth, you know, but I mean, Regardless of that, I mean, that's, I mean, people can make, people can make drinks at home where we, you know, we're, we're missing what, what the community part of it is, you know, and, right. and, 
and that that that's a point that Michael has made on on his podcast, right? You can. It's obviously much cheaper to buy a bottle of whiskey at a store and drink it at home than yeah. it is to buy it by the pour at a bar, right? We go to bars for the atmosphere, for the interaction with the bartenders, for the chance to gather with our friends, um, right? Bars, right? Or, or you know, for the chance, frankly, to maybe encounter an attractive stranger and yeah. and begin an interaction with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to lose some of our favorite, uh, we're going to lose some of our favorite bars and restaurants if, if something isn't done, you know? So I know that there's a couple of different, you know, call your, call the governor, call your Senator, you know, call, call, call basically our legislators, you know, but what can, what do we do? You know? So it's a tough situation. Um, to be well, on the- well, yeah, and so and so, let me let me sort of ask you about another aspect of this, which is, you know, one of the things Michael talked about was that the people who wanted to go to bars when bars were allowed to be open were the people who were the least likely to be cautious about washing their hands, using hand sanitizer, wearing masks, you know, all of that stuff, and so. I, I wonder about like yes the, the economic loss to bar owners is pretty catastrophic right now, but is it even fair to bar employees if all of or if they're if the vast majority of their customers are going to be uh, Michael calls them knuckle draggers which I kind of like, um, but people who who aren't taking COVID precautions seriously. Well, like is, is it are, are bar employees at too great a risk? Well, I mean, that's an interesting play on things because you have two totally different types of bar bar guests. You know, you have people that go to Anvil, you know, and they really care about Anvil because they've grown up at, you know, they've they, you know, they've grown into that community, you know, and those people, you know, like to, you know, they met their wife at Anvil and they, you know, we've seen so many people, you know, run through those doors. And then there's also, and those people were really happy to have, you know, your cocktail bar being able to not be packed and you get really exceptional service with really amazing bartenders. And then you also have on the other side of it are the patio, patio goers, you know, like big high volume, you know, what some would say, you know, kind of bros, those, those people are packing the bars on Washington, you know, which there's nothing wrong with, wrong with that, but we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know? (laughs) And, and so you have a very stark difference between those two guests. So I don't, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's fair to put everyone all in that same category and not all owners the same either. You know, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the market manager for, you know, a syrups company and I have to go to a lot of different places and that's restaurants, bars, patio bars. And at some point I've had to go into clubs and all of those people are all very, very, very different. And there are people that do care, but we're all in hospitality, you know, and it's really hard to see that there's such a very, very 
big divide in people that are wanting to make it and be safe. And then watching people that are like, you can work behind the bar without a mask on or gloves or any real ventilation. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's right, like- right. I think, I think that's exactly sort of one of the big objections to the governor's order shutting the bars down is that it is that yes, you can, you can watch the video from, from a place like Spire or, you know, Prospect Park got its license pulled by TABC for not following uh, capacity requirements or whatever. But, you know, you can also go to a place like Anvil or Johnny's Gold Brick and have an experience where they're taking the rules very seriously, where they're limited capacity, where they're running table service. And it's, it's, it's sort of arbitrary that uh, restaurants are allowed to remain open following 50% capacity and all these other rules, uh, but bars are not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and there's no, and there's no, there's, there's no relief, you know, for any, for, for like rent isn't getting, you know, you know, there's, there's, there's very little people that are getting a break on that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a, it's a really tough situation. Yeah. So, yeah. So make a prediction. I mean, what do you, what do you think? I mean, six months from now, you know, end of the year, how do you feel about the state of the bar scene in Houston? Or are we gonna, we're gonna lose a bunch of places we care about? Are we gonna pivot and figure it out? Do you think to go cocktails are gonna help? I mean, I think all, all three of those things, I think all three of those things um, will probably and need and need to happen. And that means try to get to go drinks from from your favorite places, you know, and like, and instead of having one person, one one prolific bar owner, but having several bar owners band together so that that way we can support each other. Um, and third, we, we probably will lose a couple of bars, but I think that if, you know, that if, if I know Houston, the way I know Houston is, is that like community will always come forward, like together, like as, as ambassadors, bartenders, and not only that, but the people that we have been, that we have been, you know, we've been serving. So, um, I know that Poison Girl is doing a to-go, a to-go cocktail program. And, you know, they, they were, they were there before Anvil started. And so, you know, walking in there and having like Don and Scott, I've seen them several times. I've popped in there and they're always like, Hey man, thanks so much for coming by. We're just making sure that like our staff is okay. And the people, there are people that do care about that. Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, and hopefully the people that are messing it up for the rest of us will get their dues paid, you know? So, anyways. Hopefully there's some justice in this world, right? The people who are breaking the rules get punished or, if nothing else, get scared off by stepped-up enforcement by TABC and and fall in the line. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then I have a topic number two. I have a slightly related question for you, which is, there seems to be some consensus among scientists, like obviously our knowledge of this disease is evolving, but there was a slate of recommendations released by, I want to say the Texas Medical Center that said that dining on patios is relatively safe and dining in dining rooms is more dangerous, 
right? That, that it's safer to eat outside than inside. Mm-hmm. Where are you on dining at restaurants? Because I, I, I know last week I said I felt comfortable in dining rooms where they're taking, where I can see that they're taking precautions at 50% capacity. But the more I read, the more I'm starting to think like, maybe I'm better off on patios until things calm down a bit. I mean, I think there's a couple of different things, right? So I think that sitting in a dining room is, I think is okay because most of the time it's, it's not the, the it's not the, uh, it's not the, it's not the restaurant that's going to get you sick. It's all the people that are deciding to go out. And what I see is, is that people are like, oh, it's safe. I can go and have lunch or dinner with a bunch of people that I don't know where they're, where they're at. And I've seen that a lot. So yeah, I mean, you're in a smaller space, but it has everything to do with on who you're dining with. I mean, that's how I look at it. You well, know? yeah, let, let me let me be very explicit about this. Okay. I am not worried about getting COVID-19 from restaurant staff. Yeah. Right? Because they're wearing masks and they're hand sanitizing and they're being yeah. very cautious. Yes. I am more worried about getting it from other people in the restaurant where I don't know where they've been. And I don't know how cautious they're being. Yeah, absolutely. And so... So that makes me a little nervous. What you're saying is if you're with a group of people and you know your friends and they're being reasonable, yeah. you feel comfortable eating inside with them. Yes, absolutely. I I mean I had I sat at Haymarchant a few days ago, you know, and okay. and there's there's enough space and they're not jam packed. And I went with one other person sitting at a table, but like you go to a volume, kind of a volumish restaurant. I mean, th- that sort of thing makes me nervous when they're having, when people are having like 10, 15 tops next to another table that maybe it's just six feet away, but that makes me a little nervous, you know? So I think that kind of the way that the, that the, the way that the establishment is spaced, those things make me feel okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, so, I, and I think this is one of those judgment calls. I think people are going to kind of have to feel this out for themselves. I I will say at this point, I would be happy to meet you on the patio at Hay Merchant for mm-hmm. a cease and desist burger and some crispy pig ears. Yeah. I, I don't think I would eat inside. Okay, and that's up to you. Yeah, you know? and, I, and I think, but, but the one thing I, I would never say is, like don't eat at restaurants. No. Right. I will never I will never say that. Or or at least get to go, right? Because well, it's so important. They they need our support. Well, and not only that, but I think that what the one thing that I that that I've kind of kept to in my in the back of my head, like what kind of operators are they? You know? Like that's really what's important, you know? Like I've been to La Lucha a couple of times. I've been to, um, I've been to several places, and there are operators that really care, and they care about their staff, and and they care about their guests. And then I can also say that there are operators that don't 
care about, or not that they don't care, that they're just a little, a little less. All right. All right. So what are the things you are looking for that show you that people care? So for like, cause you know, some of these people personally, so you have a, you have some, you have some experience, but if, if someone's listening to this podcast and they don't know responsible owners from irresponsible owners, what are, what are like the two things you look for when you walk in that make you think, okay, I can eat in this dining room today. Oh, first and foremost, the first person that you, you hit is direction, you know, that you've got a server, a hostess, a manager, someone being like, Hey, these are kind of the rules, you know, someone directing you and not just letting you walk in and just being like, Oh, you can just sit where anywhere. You know? Um, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, I also really, I, I prefer, and I really like it when I walk up to a restaurant, uh, and there's a, a sign that says, Hey, when you're not at your table, please put a mask on. That's like a really big, like, yay. Thanks for caring about everybody. And then uh, third, like sanitizing stations and single serving, single serving uh, condiments and, and silverware. Like I do. I, I'm <laughs> with you on that. I like seeing that giant bottle of hand sanitizer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When you walked in the door. Right. It's yeah. like, you know, and even if I'm, I'm pretty sure my hands were clean or cleanish from, you know, cause I've just come from the car or whatever. It's like, Oh yeah. Just give me a big squirt of that. No problem. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. Let's, I mean, let's all feel better about kind of where we're at. Yeah, that and that and uh, and just a mask, a mask from all staff, you know. Oh yeah, uh, that's mandatory. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they're they're you know and you know at, at the beginning that was kind of a relaxed thing the first couple of weeks and I've watched that a couple of times and and guess what like it's the law now and that makes me feel good about about that stuff and and there are a lot of people that are that are really good about it. So yeah, I mean, those are kind of like the telltale signs of, Hey, I care about you. All right. And let us do topic number three, uh, fairly briefly, but we have a new delivery app in town. It is called chow bus. It is focused on Asian restaurants. And the way they sort of build this is that they are a delivery platform so that you can get kind of the best of Chinatown delivered to other parts of the city. Uh, yeah. Do, let me simply put, are you intrigued? Like, is this enough to make you download and try out another delivery app? I mean, I generally am anti-delivery apps. <laughs> uh, that's just my own thing because they take 25% to 30% of the, of the, of, um, of the revenue. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and I will say, I had a reader ask me about this. Uh, Chowbus does not comment on the percentage that they take, oh, so okay. I I can't tell you what they. Take. Well, haram, but fine. But I, I well, what I what I told them is, if you take less than what other delivery apps take, you should tell people because yeah. that will make them more likely to use you. Yeah. So no, I, I I tried. No, um, know that I tried. Okay. Um. But. I am also a big, big, big um, Chinatown fan. I like anything Asian, Vietnamese, Cambodian, you know. I'm, I'm <laughs> Sichuan, Taiwanese, yeah. Uh, Korean. Yeah, Korean, no, for sure. Yes. I'm all about that life. Um, 
Yeah, I'm actually, I'm kind of excited to see what they have on there. And I wouldn't mind picking up a couple of things to supplement my, my weekly snackage. Uh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, no. So here's, so they do a couple of things that I, I think are kind of interesting, which is you can bundle. So if like restaurants are physically close to each other, you know, they'll be like, Chow Bus will give you the option to add different dishes from restaurants that are close to each other for one delivery fee. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm sort of intrigued by that. Oh, yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'd be all about that life. So, no, I haven't I haven't tried it yet, but I did, I did download it. I did kind of scroll through, and I was like, ooh, Arco Seafood, Confucius. Uh, what? You know, Confucius? Mala... Uh, yeah, Confucius is on there. Oh, my gato. I must. <laughs> All right. Uh, Linda, that does it for the News of the Week. We'll be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Linda, for our Restaurants of the Week, you proposed that we do things slightly differently since, you know, neither one of us has tried a new restaurant in the last couple of weeks, you suggested that we do some of our best bites from our recent meals. Yes. So you want to go first or you want to go, well, no, you know what? Let's start with Tatemo because I know that we both had that. We both had a, man, I'm going to, I'm going to mess this up so bad. Tayuda. Tlayuda. Thank you. Say it one more time for the people in the back. Tlayuda. T-L-A-Y-U-D-A. A, yes. And, a, a flat, crispy piece of masa topped with beans and greens and basically, avocado and tomato. and So basically, it's a Oaxacan crispy tostada. Good. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't want to use the P word to describe it. What? What's the P word? Pizza. I just feel oh, it feels very disrespectful. Oh, come on. Like, it doesn't it's, eat like a pizza. It's I mean, a totally it different does, It does not eat like a pizza, but it's a big tostada-style Mexican or Oaxacan pizza. Like, if, if the guys from Tatemo want to, you know, scramble my brains, that's fine. I'll We can spar up later. You know, they're going to be at the farmer's market there soon. So, yes, they're, yes, yeah. they're going to be at the farmer's market soon. Um, I, I will say... My only Tayuda experiences previously were at Sochi. This is a much bigger dish than I was sort of used to. Um, and so the a person we both know who travels to Mexico relatively frequently messaged me to say that it reminds him of being in Oaxaca. Yes, absolutely. So what did you think? I mean, would you would you... Were you impressed by the quality of the Tayuda, and would you order it again? Uh, yes, I, I would order it. Highly recommend it. Ingredients were incredible. Um, yeah, absolutely, 100%. That's actually one of my best bites. So. Yeah. So, to Temo, T-A-T-E-M-O. It's on Instagram. It's uh, This is uh, online only, delivery only. Um. They grind the corn, right? This is this is a this is a, this is a very artisanal sort of product, right? They grind the corn. They're using farmers market produce. It's 
it is certainly the best thing I ate last week. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's excellent. They're going to be doing a couple of different things, but um, they have a couple of sopes and a couple of other things. So, yeah, uh, highly recommended. All right, what's your next? What's your next bite? All right, my next bite is the fruit tart that I ordered from Christina Ah. She's a pastry chef who, in Houston, worked for Common Bond for a while. She was on the West Coast working for a Four Seasons property, then she was on the East Coast working for a Four Seasons property. Uh, and right now she's, she's back in Houston, right? The, the hotel business in Philadelphia is not coming back anytime soon. So, so she's living with her parents and making, uh, pastries and, and cookies and cakes that you can order from her over Instagram, Christina, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-U, follow her on Instagram, um, but this fruit tart was incredible. It had lemon curd and pastry cream, and then it was topped with raspberries, strawberries, dragon fruit, citrus, just all kinds of deliciousness. Awesome. All right. What was your give me another best bite? Um orchata filled cream donut at tenfold coffee. It is by the I never know how to say their their thing. I uh, think it's Clawwalk, but please don't hold me to that. Yeah, Clawwalk. It's a um, they were in the they they they've they've done a couple of little spots. They were a Greenway as a pop up, and then they're now doing a bakery pop up at a couple of different places. Please follow them. Um, I'm sure. Eric Sandler, you're going to post this all on your, on, uh, on. I, I will, I will, the, I will link to their, I will link to their Instagram in the culture map article that accompanies this podcast. They are a giant leap coffee on the East side right now in the second ward. And they are occasionally at tenfold in the Heights. Yes. But again, an H orchata cream filled donut. And it is delicious. Uh, I am a sucker for a uh, cream-filled donut. <laughs> <laughs> All oh right. And then, and then I will say the Annie Cafe uh, was very generous. They provided me with dinner last week. I got their seared snapper. It comes with a Veracruz sauce, which is uh, like tomatoes and olives, a little bit of uh, jumbo lump crab on top of that just for luxury. And then I got tortilla soup as a starter, uh, a little sauteed spinach for veggies, and then it comes with like cookies and a little brownie bite on the side. Is this a, is this a sponsored date? A sponsored dinner? It was not sponsored, but they they didn't they they didn't pay me, but they didn't charge me. Hmm. Right? Hmm. They sent it to me uh, in the hopes that I would enjoy it and talk about it. And oh, so I see. I see. Mission mission accomplished. <laughs> so all right. Uh, but, you know, that's Robert Del Grande's restaurant, right? He's now partnered with Ben Berg, who's the owner of B&B Butchers and a whole bunch of other places. Um, Snapper dinner is $49. But like I said, it's a it's like basically a three-course meal with a side, which for a restaurant like the Annie is a, is a pretty good deal. And I just hadn't had a lot of, like, whole fish recently. You know what I mean? Like, I just hadn't had, like, a, a nice piece of Snapper in a really long time, so... That that uh, that checked a lot of boxes for me. Awesome. Um, All right, let's do let's do one more each. Man, 
I'm a sucker for pizza, especially with pizza and eggs. And Bolo did a, we actually ordered two pizzas between two people, like a bunch of chonkies. Um, and we had, we had a, uh, a sausage pizza with fresh jalapenos and the sausage comes from, uh, Chris Shepard, one of Chris Shepard's restaurants and all of their proceeds go to, uh, Southern smoke. So, um, it's the bacon sausage, right? It's, it's Chris's like kind of famous, isn't it right? Oh yeah. 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 Sausage, jalapenos, an egg, delightful cheese, nice crispy charred, you know, crust. It was outstanding. (laughs) All right. That is good to know. Um, yeah, Bolo is kind of a staple in that upper Kirby area. It's not quite Neapolitan. It's kind of it, but it's close. Yeah, it's 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 too crispy to be authentically Neapolitan, but that just makes yeah. it easier to pick up and eat. Yeah, absolutely. All right, and then I took uh, I took David Leftwich's advice. He said Golden Bagel has really easy online ordering and pickup. So you you order it online, you pick it up. Uh, on their patio it's it's very straightforward it's very simple uh i did that for breakfast on friday i had a a very delicious lox bagel with cream cheese and and all the usual toppings and a and a cup of freshly squeezed orange juice and uh you know i i just need a certain amount of bagels and lox in my life as as a jewish person as a jewish person who's the grandson of a kosher caterer like it's just like an emotional need for me so, uh, golden, golden really satisfied my craving. And, uh, and I will say that in driving from Montrose to the Heights, I drove past a different bagel shop with a huge line out the door. And I was so grateful for online pre-ordering and easy pickup when I got to golden. Awesome. All right. You got one more? Yeah, I do. Um, barbacoa egg taco. Okay. Uh, on a little hard roll, fluffy eggs, delicious barbacoa, a little bit of a uh, red onion and avocado. And that is by the Topo truck. Oh, yes. El Topo. Yes. You had um, it at the Urban Harvest Farmer's Market. Yeah. He actually said he had a, he had a, a carnitas. Uh, he said he had a carnitas uh special for the weekend but he said he's going to be rolling out a couple of different things at their at their um restaurant in west university yeah 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 yeah. so much love to those guys so i'm i'm gonna have to go pick up some things from them this week all right linda thank you very much hey thanks so much talk to you soon and i will be right back with christine you're listening to what's eric eating I am joined this week by Christine Ha. She's a woman that needs almost no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. She is the winner of MasterChef Season 3, the author of Recipes from My Home Kitchen, Asian and American Comfort Food, and the chef owner of both The Blind Goat and Bravery Chef Hall, and Sin Cow coming soon to Washington Avenue or near Washington Avenue. Christine Ha, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks for doing this. Um, I always like to kind of start at the beginning. So can you tell me just kind of how you became initially interested in cooking kind of growing up? 
Uh, that's kind of a loaded question because I really wasn't interested in cooking growing up. And it wasn't until I was a young adult in my early 20s, I would say, uh, when I was in college. And I it started out as something that was a necessity because I moved out of the dorms after my first year in college. And then I was in an apartment with some roommates that, that had a small kitchen and I knew I couldn't sustain myself on fast food and I didn't have access to the dorm cafeteria and I couldn't afford to always eat out. So I knew that I had to learn to cook. And then I started by trying to cook the foods that I grew up eating, which was a lot of Asian food, particularly Vietnamese food. And, uh, you know, my mom passed away when I was young, uh, when I was 14, she had never taught me how to cook. She was actually very overprotective and didn't really let me near any knives or the stove in the kitchen growing up. Uh, not that I was interested really anyway, but because I missed her foods, I tried to recreate some of that starting in college. And then after a lot of unsuccessful attempts, I finally was able to make like a couple dishes that were edible and it just kind of grew from there my enjoyment for cooking because I was able to feed my friends and my roommates and then at the time I had vision so I could see that they were satisfied they were happy they complimented me on the food that I was able to feed them and it made me happy to be able to create something with my own two hands and make other people happy right and and then I guess you you must have developed quite a repertoire because if you felt confident enough to apply for MasterChef? <laughs> well, I, you know, so my husband is a Gordon Ramsay fan and he watched like Hell's Kitchen and Kitchen Nightmares at the time. And um, my friends were also really fascinated by my ability to cook full meals in the kitchen without my vision. And so everyone kind of pushed me to try out for the show saying, you know, you people are going to be curious to know how someone with, you know, little to no vision can cook for themselves and for other people in the kitchen. So for me, it's it's kind of a strange feeling because it's just, you know, I don't you know, I am myself. So I I don't really have that perspective where I don't think my story is interesting. I'm just kind of like, well, this is my life. And I had to adapt after I lost my vision. And so to me, it was just other people pushing me and encouraging me to, to audition for the show. And at the time, I was in graduate school for creative writing. And I figured as an artist, you try to experience as much as you can in life. And you would hope that something comes out of it to spark more creativity in your work. And so I thought I was just going to go audition for the show and then come back with some good stories to write, thinking that, you know, I wouldn't make it very far. I just thought it would be an interesting life experience. Well, I I am also a Gordon Ramsay fan. Your husband and I apparently have that in common. <laughs> and I remember kind of watching that season just thinking like, you know, this woman is blind. She can't see. Like, surely eventually there's going to be some, some challenge that requires artful plating, like looking at something to know whether it's done. I mean, like something, something's going to trip her up. Right? It's, it just didn't seem possible uh, for someone who doesn't have sight to to win a cooking competition. But I mean, you you prevailed over over some pretty stiff competition, as I recall. Yeah, I, I mean, there were definitely challenges that were very difficult for me. Um, you know, particularly one was a tag team challenge. And, and that took a lot of vision because, you know, 
my partner and I, we weren't cooking at the same time. And it was like, once the time was up, you have to switch spots and then you switch, you know, one person that was standing on the sidelines can go in into the kitchen and start cooking, but they have to pick up where their partner left off. And obviously, because I can't see, I'm on the sidelines, not really knowing what's going on. And yes, you know, I had an aide that would feed me information um, by telling me verbally what's going on, but it's just so much to process. I'm trying to process what she's telling me. And then when I come in, it's just, you know, things aren't organized the way I would organize them. And there are a lot of things, you know, especially baking too, like the baking, the apple pie, baking is not my forte because once you put something in the oven, you can't really see if, uh, if you don't have vision, like how the crust is doing, what color it's turning. You, you don't really know if it's done until you pull it out and test it. And by then, you know, if you're making souffle, it could have deflated. So there were a lot of very difficult challenges for me. Um, I think with plating, I think surprisingly, it was something that came easily to me. And, and it's because I, I attribute it to the fact that I used to have vision. And I remember what colors look like, how they contrast. And so when I started plating, I would close my eyes and picture in my head what I wanted it to look like on a plate. And then I would set about doing it with my hands. And for me, that moment of plating was actually the most Zen feeling I would have in, in any challenge is because I knew that it was about to be over. And I knew that I hopefully did the best that I could. And, and whatever happens after that, whatever the judges say, whether I got sent home or I got to stay, it was kind of already done with and, and wasn't in my hands anymore at that point. Yeah. I'm So you, again, so you, you win MasterChef, you, you become probably one of the, I mean, I, this may not be fair to the other winners of MasterChef, but you know, since you were from Houston, you sort of stick out for me as, as one of the more high-profile winners of the show. But then it took sort of seven years to get to the blind goat. So what were you – did you always want to have your own restaurant? Was that from the time you won the show? Or, uh, or what was that path like to sort of get from, from winning MasterChef to opening the blind goat? Yeah, uh, actually, before I ever went on MasterChef, I was toying around with the idea of opening an ice cream shop. And that stemmed from a visit years ago, I would say like 10 years ago to San Francisco, where the sort of, you know, artisan creative ice cream flavors that we do have here now in Houston, um, that wasn't really being done in Houston, but I was tasting it in San Francisco, um, sometimes Los Angeles. And I was like, Houston would, could use an ice cream shop like this, where it's not your typical flavors. And so I was actually toying around with that idea before ever going on MasterChef. Um, so I knew that eventually I would love to open a food place, um, you know, whether it's a cafe, a um, fast casual place, an ice cream shop, a small um, restaurant or whatever it is. Uh, it was kind of already on my radar. And then the show happened. And then after that, Immediately coming back to Houston, I did look at some real estate to open a place, but it just, nothing just felt quite right. I think, you know, I am very much aware that just because I'm a great home cook, and even if I won the title of MasterChef on this show, doesn't mean that I'm a professional chef or that I have the experience to run a commercial kitchen. And the idea of opening a brick and mortar and putting like, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million dollars into building out a space and, you know, not really knowing for sure what I was doing. It just all seemed really daunting and it just didn't feel like the right time. And even though I talked to people who wanted to partner with me, I looked at spaces, it's just something in my gut didn't feel 
that it was the right time or the right place. And from anything I learned from MasterChef was to trust your gut. And so I just felt like, okay, I'm going to keep doing the other things I was doing. You know, I wrote the cookbook. I did a lot of public speaking. I did events, um, uh, all those other things, you know, more television and cooking, et cetera. And then I think that all helped me get to where I am, you know, seven, eight years later, which was to finally open my first place uh, in Houston. Right. So what was it about Bravery Chef Hall that made that feel like the right place to finally take that step? Well, I've always loved the concept of food halls. And, you know, it was something that I it's one of the things that I love visiting when I travel. Um, traveling is one of my favorite things to do. And after I lost my vision, sightseeing obviously became secondary. So the only way I could really learn about another culture or another region is through the food that I could taste. So food halls give you a very good, uh, I would say, intersection of what that area or that city or that country or region is all about. Because you can get all different kinds of foods, different vendors selling things. So that idea really intrigued me. And I'd been to, you know, food halls in Asia and in Europe um, and in South America. And finally, you know, they were starting to come to Houston. So I, I wanted to actually support them just with uh, financially. Um, that's what my husband initially contacted the bravery um, folks to ask them about if we could be just silent partners or uh, just investors or or loan them money or whatever. And then things just kind of fell into place when they offered me, why don't, you know, they said, why don't you open your own place? And I was like, well, I guess this could be really exciting because one, I don't have to build out a whole brick and mortar. I don't have to do all of the city permitting and all of the stuff that I figured I could do an, another time. You know, it was a small space. I didn't have to worry about a lot of front of house as well as back of house. So I thought it was a good segue into learning the restaurant industry by taking a small step. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, we're getting to basically the one year mark of Bravery opening. I mean, what's it been like for you? What have you sort of learned about the restaurant business in your first year? <laughs> I learned that it is definitely tough. And I knew it would be tough. Uh, you know, for sure, going into it, everyone was you know, that were art that was already in the industry told me, you know, are you crazy or are you sure? And I said, well, I would never know unless I tried. And even if I failed, I could say I, I tried and I experimented with it and I experienced it. And so it's definitely hard. And then another interesting thing I learned was that having a smaller space has its own set of problems. It's not necessarily uh, easier but it's not necessarily harder. It's just different. So, you know, a lot of the other chefs who own the other concepts in the hall, they have a lot more experience than me, but they also said, you know, some of them said this is one of the most challenging projects they've ever done, just having to work in such a small space. And then the fact that we share a very small commissary kitchen in the back, uh, a lot of things are just shared, the walk-in fridge, the freezer. So having a small space has its own, challenges. And I think that's what I've learned is that no matter what, the industry is hard, the margins are small, uh, but a lot of people do it for the love of it and for the passion of it. And that I totally respect. All right. And then I, I have to ask you, you Blind Goat was nominated uh, James Beard semifinalist. What was that experience like when you, when you heard that news? <laughs> I was definitely shocked. I didn't uh, expect it. I, I think I 
I tend to go through life hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. But also, you know, I, I don't like to set myself up to um, think that I've achieved everything I can achieve. It's always about being better tomorrow than I was today. And so I actually found out, I think, because I, I want to say it was on my, I think, of bravery. He, I think he might have texted John, my husband, or something like that, saying like, congratulations, or maybe something came up, or people were starting to text us or, or tag us on Facebook or something. And I remember distinctly, I was getting ready to do an interview on the phone with a publication. And then John was in another room. And then I think he was yelling from the other room. And he's like, we just got like, semi-finalists for James Beard. And I just remember saying like, shut the hell up. Cause I thought he was like pulling my leg. And he says, no, I'm serious. That's what someone said. And I was like, I think they're lying to us. And then like all, you know, then my phone started blowing up and then I, I did read it in um, the news. And so it was, it was a huge shock. And then right after that, I had to, to do a, an interview and it was just a, a strange feeling to kind of be on this cloud nine. And then it, it felt surreal. Um, it, you know, it felt, it felt nice that I think we were being recognized for, for something, for an achievement, but by far, I, I wouldn't say like, you know, we, we could rest on our laurels for sure. I always feel like whether you're a restaurant, a business, a person, an individual, you always try to improve every day what you're doing. Um, and so I just felt like, okay, this is a step, but this doesn't mean that we stop working or that we can say we're, we're done. Like there's still so many things to work on. And, and that's how I felt, but I did feel proud for a short second. And then it was back to work. <laughs> that's very, uh, Bill Belichick of you. That's very, uh, Nick Saban. <laughs> so, so, so what would you say are maybe the one or two, like the biggest improvements you've made at the blind goat in the, in the year? I mean, I think with any startup, there's a lot of bumps in the road that you have to learn. You really have to learn to adapt and shift. And of course, like this is of all the times in history, this is one of those times when you just have to really learn to pivot and adapt your business or else you won't stay relevant and you could fail. Um, so I think what I've learned is along with my staff is how to be fluid how to adapt. And then, you know, eventually, you know, our, I feel like our core values have really emerged. And I always tell my team to, you know, it's, you need to be better today than you were yesterday. You need to experiment without the fear of failure. You should commit to helping others around you. Uh, and then you need to enjoy the ride. And I feel like those are our four core values that we tell our team and that my husband and I, who are both business partners in the restaurant, tell ourselves. And, and that's the way we try to live our lives as well. And I, I think the fact that our team at The Blind Goat is realizing these core values and living them out makes me proud. And, and I feel like we've all improved in terms of teamwork and how to run this business. And it, it's not easy starting anything off the ground, let alone a restaurant. Um, and I said from the beginning, you know, like John and I are not experienced restaurant owners nor chefs. This is new to us. So we're learning alongside all of you. So we're very open to feedback uh, from our staff, from customers. And I think it's a, it's a big learning curve. But I think the fact that we've learned to work together 
and to live by those core values and to adapt and pivot um, and be flexible. I think those are things that help us improve. Yeah, and so I, I would I would like to pivot this conversation slightly and talk to you a little bit about Sin Chow, your new, the new restaurant you're uh, opening with Tony Wynn from Saigon House. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of talk me through the concept a little bit and from the perspective of maybe how it's going to be different from the blind goat. Yeah, so this kind of, the the story about this restaurant coming about is an interesting one as well. Like I'd been to Tony's restaurant, Saigon House, when it was open in Midtown. Uh, I'd never met him. And uh, I think when we opened at Bravery, I met him there. He was hanging out there a lot, as a lot of industry folks do hang out at Bravery. I met him there. And then we were kind of commiserating and John and I were telling him like, man, starting a restaurant's really hard and we were swapping war stories. And then I just said these, you know, we're always behind with prep. Um, And I know it's a good problem to have when you're always running out of food because there's a demand for it. But at the same time, I don't like disappointing people. And I understand the frustration of people coming to try our food and we're out of virtually everything on the menu because we just can't keep up. So Tony offered to show up the next day at like 7 a.m. and help us prep. And I was just like, I don't know you, so I don't expect this favor from you. So don't even worry about it. But sure enough, the next morning, he showed up with a big smile on his face, I'm sure. And he helped us prep for like two days in a row and just just helped us. Um, And then I just felt like that was like a sort of generosity that you don't always see in this day and age. And then we just sort of uh, started a friendship at that point and then talked about the industry talked about restaurants, what we our visions are for food, what Houston means to us, what it was like to be uh, raised in Houston. And then it just naturally kind of came together when we were like, why don't we do a restaurant? And then we were toying around with that idea. And then the space um, kind of fell into our laps as well. Uh, I like the location. I like that there's a patio. It's a full bar um, that we could do there. Um, so the space at Decatur um, was just kind of fitting. And then we just kind of jumped the gun and said, let's do it right before all of this COVID stuff happened. <laughs> but that that's kind of how that happened. I would say that Sin Jiao is going to give us the opportunity, you know, to try uh, a different, similar, but different type of menu that we were doing at our other places, like me at the Blind Goat and Tony at Saigon House, respectively. I think with Sin Jiao, for him, it's giving him an opportunity to do more elevated Vietnamese food. You know, a lot of people, he's known for crawfish and that's what people want from him. But I know that Tony's itching to try other things. And for me, the blind goat is in such a small space right now that now we have a slightly larger kitchen. We're able to do a full bar, which I've always loved to dabble in uh, cocktails. Um and then the fact that, you know, it's got a patio space and it feels like a neighborhood hangout. That's like, that's a dream for me as well as to run like a neighborhood type restaurant. And so I think our menu will kind of be similar in that it is Vietnamese, the essence of Vietnamese flavors and dishes, but then doing a modern twist on them. Um, so, you know, we have a smoker at Sin Chao. We've been uh, experimenting with smoking brisket, with smoking beef ribs, smoking pork, uh, smoking seafood. And so we're bringing that Texas element into it, using a lot of local ingredients that we can get uh, here, whether it's seafood or beef or um, like different products. And then I think, you know, we'll see from there kind of 
what the people want. And that sometimes, you know, dictates how the menu changes. Yeah, I think that intersection of kind of Texas culinary traditions and Vietnamese food is so interesting. I mean, I've like I I don't know quite where what you've been eating, but, but you know, between like Le Baguette and Koi Barbecue and Blood Brothers, there's and and some of the stuff that Tony was doing at Saigon House. I mean, he was doing uh, brisket fun and some other dishes. I mean, it, it it's just such an exciting like combination of flavors. Mm-hmm. So for me, I just I'm I'm really looking forward to kind of whatever you guys come up with, just because I I've enjoyed what other people are doing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like food and restaurants they're really very much a story. Like people, you know, want to know like why your menu is the way it is. Like why is the experience of dining at Xinjiang or the blind goat the way it is? And story and is so important behind that. And the fact that Tony and I are both of Vietnamese heritage, raised in Texas, we have a certain sensibility to what foods we like, you know, like I, we, you know, we grew up, near Tex-Mex, near Southern food, near barbecue. We grew up eating a lot of Vietnamese food at home. And so I think that incorporating those ideas and flavors and stories and weaving that into our menu is what, you know, and being able to tell that story with the food and just with service and, and what we choose to serve at the bar and on and food-wise, I think that tells a great deal. And it, it makes for the whole experience so much more than just I'm going to order this food and eat it and that's it. You know, now you get to know the chefs. You get to know why this is on the menu, where where this food is coming from. And I feel like that's really special. So are there a couple of dishes that you are particularly excited about that you can share with us? <laughs> well, we're still working on the menu and, and it's going to have to change a little bit just with this whole funny thing going on with the food supply chain and, and you know, the now we're going to focus more on the outdoor patio dining. And so not, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the time to do very fancy foods, but people are looking for something comfortable um, that they're used to, but also something maybe a little bit different or experimental. So we're trying to find that balance. So we're actually working a lot on um, different things. Like Tony's been practicing a lot with the smoker. uh, And then we want to incorporate like some of the dishes that I like a kind of a maybe a reboot of some of the dishes that I did on MasterChef because people will want to try some of that too. So we're kind of playing around with some of that, whether it's the um, the braised pork that I did in the finale or um, like a play on the crab cocktail I did. We're trying to see how that can fit into the menu with some of Tony's strength and then working in that smoker and like local Gulf Coast seafood and all that. So we're still playing around with it. Um, the menu may change. So I, I really, you know, I don't want to say like, we're going to have this one thing and then for sure we'll be able to get that um, meat or whatever seafood by the time we open, but they will be solid dishes and we're super excited to, to see what people think. All right. And then the, the other obvious question that I, I have to ask you is when do you think you'll open? Obviously this is a, a difficult <laughs> yeah, time a- for restaurants. Yeah, that's a great question. So we did have our city inspections, our building inspections back in June. There were things that we needed to fix and get the building back up to code. Um, So we are working right now to get all those repairs done as quickly as possible and then do the city permitting again and inspections. 
So right now we're looking at probably the end of July, but of course that's a moving target just depending on how the city, um, how they uh, do their inspections and what, what else we possibly need to fix or, or whatever. But we're looking at the end of this month. And then, uh, you know, Linda Salinas was this week's co-host. So she was on the, the first half of the show. I know she's been kind of working with you guys on cocktails. Uh, what's that been like or, or, or kind of where are you in the, in the cocktail program? Yeah. So we've given Linda pretty much the reins for the bar program. I trust Linda. I like Linda. We're friends outside of this from before. And, um, I like that she's assertive and knows what she's doing. Um, she is opinionated. <laughs> so, but I think, you know, I, we've had a tasting already. She's taken down notes of feedback that I've given her. Um, I think it'll be, you know, she has a lot of experience with knowing what kinds of things we need to have on the menu. She understands what sort of ingredients we're doing. She understands Southeast Asian cuisine very well. So she's, you know, designing some cocktails that will pair well with our menu and just kind of be exciting. For me, my question is always like, am I excited to drink this or am I, would I order this? Would I be excited to try this? And, you know, so far it's good. And I'm excited to see like Linda unveil her final bar program for uh, our opening. So it's been a good experience so far. Well, and not just would I drink this, but would I order a second one? That's the, yeah, that's also true. Yeah. Um, all right. And then, so we have that to look forward to. Uh, and then I, I skimmed your website and it says you're working on a second cookbook. Yeah, that's been in the making for a while. So I recently just switched literary agents actually. And then right now I'm kind of concentrating more on the memoir, which I've been working on since grad school. And I just feel like I've been so saturated, I think, with the culinary side of my career that I felt like I needed something like a a, a breath of fresh air. And so I kind of wanted to go back to my creative writing side and force my brain to think about um, literature more. So I'm working on the memoir, but I'm thinking that a cookbook would fall into place quite easily um, after the success of The Blind Goat and then the opening of Xinjiao. So that should, um, you know, I feel like that will be something I, I would be working on simultaneously in the near future. Very good. All right. Well, Christine, that sort of brings me to the end of my questions, unless there is something else you would like to discuss? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I think just right now it's a crazy time in so many ways with this pandemic and everything going on on the world stage and in our nation. And it's a tough time for everybody. And I think, you know, food is something that's universal. We all have to eat and food is brings so much joy to so many people that I'm hoping that we can continue that tradition by feeding people and serving people, um, even though it may look very different now um, in this current day because of COVID and stuff. But, um, you know, my hope and uh, my expectation is that food will still unite people. Uh, and I hope to be a part of that. And I love Houston as a city. It's growing so much and I, I'm proud to call it my hometown. So I'm excited to open yet another restaurant here and and then have you there soon, Eric. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Okay. Five easy, five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. All Christine, right. ha, what is your favorite ingredient? Garlic. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, Smashing Pumpkins. 
What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Oh, uh, Chick-fil-A um, sandwich, uh, meal number one with a lemonade. <laughs> is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh, I, well, I grew up with my father watching a lot of basketball, so I would have to say Olajuwon. So that's a very good answer. And then <laughs> finally, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Oh, funnily enough, I like to just try the cheese. I base my uh, the the uh, judgment of a pizza on their crust, their tomato sauce, and their cheese. Christine, give us your what's uh, what's the best way for people to follow everything you're you're doing? Probably probably Instagram. Yeah, I'm pretty active on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and my handle on all of those is the Blind Cook all lowercase, no spaces. And the blind goat is the blind goat HTX. And the second restaurant, Sinchao, is X-I-N-C-H-A-O-H-T-X. Christine, thanks so much. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. As a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. I welcome your comments and reviews, but like Katie Nolan always says, only if it's five stars and only if it's nice. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.